Sarah. Hi, Allison. So France might be on the way to being the first country to enshrine the right to abortion in its constitution. Yeah, the National Assembly took the first step, voting last week to approve a bill that would change the constitution and add an extra line that would read, the law guarantees the effectiveness and equal access to the right to voluntarily end a pregnancy. Yeah, the proposal passed with a huge majority, 337 votes for and 32 against. And it was introduced by the hard-left France Unbowed Party, this after the U.S. Supreme Court's decision this year to overturn the nationwide right to abortion there. Unbowed MP Mathilde Panot said that the vote was important for France, but also abroad. This historic victory is a symbol for our country, but also the world, she said on the floor of the assembly. She dedicated the vote to the women of the United States, Poland and Hungary, who, she said, are seeing their rights to abortion under threat. I also want to dedicate this to the activists in our country who fight daily for women to have the right to do what they want with their bodies. A group of feminist activists who were present at the National Assembly for the vote accompanied Pano out of the chamber afterwards, singing the feminist anthem, Debout les Femmes. Pano and a member of President Emmanuel Macron's party drew up the bill. She said it's necessary in France to protect against a regression, as she put it. Abortion was legalized in France in 1975 via the so-called Loi Veil, named after the health minister, Simone Veil, who pushed it through. Yeah, many conservative and Catholic politicians who were against the proposal to put the right in the Constitution said it's unnecessary given the legal protections already in place with this law. Yeah, Marine Le Pen of the far-right National Rally Party, that's the biggest single opposition party in Parliament, described the legislation as totally misplaced. And she said that abortion rights were not under threat in France. So Gwenaël Calves, who's a public law professor at the University of Sergi Pontoise, told RFI that she actually agrees that the right to abortion isn't under threat in France. I think it's a purely symbolic move. Its proponents even admit it. There is no threat from political parties who, like the religious right in the United States, would aim to overturn the Vey law. Given the current state of things, there is no threat. But it would be for the unlikely day when such a threat could appear. Calves even warns that a constitutional amendment might backfire because it involves a referendum. After passing in the lower house, the Senate needs to approve it and then it would be put to a national vote. If some people are reticent, it's because it's useless. Why make French people vote on such an extremely tenuous subject given there's no political or legal urgency? Using a constitutional amendment to make a symbolic point can be upsetting. I can understand that. Would people come out to vote on a referendum when nothing was at stake? It risks being a big flop with people not turning out to vote. The constitutional amendment was passed in the National Assembly through a deal with Emmanuel Macron's ruling party. It was a rare instance, wasn't it, of agreement between the opposition, France Unbowed, and Macron's party. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often at the no, moment. No, not at all. They're definitely 
um, you know, head to head. Yeah, yeah. And Calves says this actually could be one of the reasons why the government's party backed the bill. It has not escaped anyone's notice that the National Assembly is quite divided. The President's party no longer has an absolute majority. And so his party wants to organize what it calls co-productions to show that political parties are able to work together. The vast majority of French people approve of abortion rights, but the last few years have seen a drop in the actual access to the procedure. Doctors have been using the conscience clause in the existing law that allows them to opt out of the procedure. And hospital closures, medical deserts, you know, access to health care being difficult in some areas, all that is limiting actual access to abortion. And this is what worries abortion rights advocates, this reversal of access. Coincidence or not, a film came out this week talking about the time before abortion was legal. Annie Colère, or Angry Annie, tells the story of the MLAC, or the Movement for the Freedom of Abortion and Contraception, that was founded in 1973. Its goal was to get abortion legalized in France. Comment tu t'appelles? Annie. J'ai deux enfants. Est-ce que tu as déjà aborté? Une fois. C'était avec quoi? In the trailer, we see Annie, the main character. She says she's aborted once before with a knitting needle. The movie follows Annie's political awakening, getting involved with the Mlak cell in the small town where she lives and works in a mattress factory. There were 300 Mlak cells by the end of 1974. These were groups of volunteers who were performing abortions on women using a suction method developed by an American, Harvey Carmen. After getting her own abortion, Annie gets involved in the group after her neighbor and friend dies from a botched abortion. Um, so, yeah, Allison, we just got out of the film. Mm-hmm. What was your takeaway? What did you get? What did you think of this movie? Well, there were a few things that I really appreciated. One of them is the way that it showed abortion. It's something that's really, really, very rarely seen at the cinema. The director herself, uh, Blondine Lenoir, she said she there were six abortions obviously staged in the film and she said that's more than has ever been shown in French cinema. Well it's interesting because it's this this method that isn't used right it's this sort of suction method like actually that I've heard is now coming back um, and being reintroduced in sort of underground networks in the United States actually. Well it came from the States in the first place. Yeah yeah and it's just interesting that actually like each actress had a different reaction there were some who were really relieved and some who were saying this is this is a sin. Um, some say it hurt, some didn't. Um, yeah. it's, it's just interesting also just how short, actually, and I think it was filmed, it was ex- shown in that one of the, the, the volunteers was singing a song to calm one of the women down, yeah. and the length of the song, and then it was over. Yeah. And she said, oh, that's it, and that's yeah. it. So that, I mean, that was interesting. It was, because apparently like, the procedure is indeed very, very short. Yeah. You say that you retained, like, the woman who said... I feel that this is a sin. Mm-hmm. It's true. There was one who seemed quite traumatized. And yet, at the end, each one of them expressed uh, relief. Yeah, there was a clear relief. You saw yeah. that, you know, like some yeah. were crying or some were happy. But you really, that for me was quite moving of this feeling yeah. of, because you just imagine this feeling of dread that's pushing you to, to this, this, frankly, yeah. illegal act, right? So and at and the time, you, at the time. Illegal. So you're like going in the back of a bookstore or whatever, trying to find this underground network of people mm. doing this procedure that, that takes a lot of guts, guts and yeah. also desperation. Yeah, desperation. And yet what, what the film shows is that in those conditions, the way that they, those mainly women, although there were some male doctors as well, mm. the way that they were carrying it out was with this gentleness, with this tenderness, 
trying to accompany the woman in what is a difficult thing as fully globally as possible, whether it was, you know, with song or talking, hand-holding. A kind of utopia of how women's health um, might be. Yeah, you know? well, and there was a scene in which they were training these two male doctors, and they're yeah. saying, okay, and now how are you going to talk to the women? They say, what are you yeah. talking about? I like yeah. to be quiet. How am I supposed to work while I'm talking yeah. to them? And yeah. they said, no. well, let me show you. But there, that, that brings me to an aspect where I found that the movie, there is an element of, and I think it's hard to make a movie like this without being kind of preachy yeah, and kind of like the, the, there are just so many points you need to hit to be like okay mm. there's the abortion thing there's the history thing okay there's the whole how do you deal with women's health and then at the very end there's this sort of they're sitting around in the grass after the law of 1975 passes making abortion legal and they have this basically five minute discussion where every person is playing a different role yeah. of sort of the different strands of do we keep do we keep doing this this fight no we don't you know yeah. we doctors should be doing it no it should be still done you know yeah. in grassroots thing and then all yeah, that at the, the end should be able to do it yeah and and you get this sort of roundup of basically mm. every argument in five minutes and and that to me was like okay well it, it, it did strike me as a bit preachy but then maybe that the idea is for it to be a sort of almost an educational film well there and yeah. there was a debate after this film this sure. screening that we just saw right yeah. and the, the director was here yeah um, and the leading character Laura Calmy who's become quite famous in France now yeah and and one of the things she did say is something like she made reference to the fact that there's no museum of this kind of thing and actually this is a movement that got dropped into obscurity I think she actually does see this as kind of a a way of enshrining this in history, even if she was asked, you know, like, is this a way of encouraging people to fight? And she said, no, no, I'm just making a film. Well, yeah. Mm, yeah. There, there's a certain responsibility when you take on a subject like this. Yeah, because these, you know, the, the, the women involved in the movement, and as we've said, a few men, they were carrying out acts of civil disobedience. Mm. They were committing abortions, which were illegal at the time. And it's clear that in a way, the way that the director talks is that, yes, she is defending civil disobedience for some causes. Yeah. She, she considers this one was completely valid mm. and sort of leaves the door open in a way for continuing maybe uh, to act in a similar way for things that you really believe in. Yeah, she did seem to talk a lot to the audience, which was quite young. There were a lot of young people in the audience of like, yeah. you know, you need to know what your mothers and grandmothers did. You know, yeah. there's this. And I mean, it's true. I mean, she even said, you know, if you don't know the history, you don't know what was fought for and you sort of let go of the fight. And, and you know, you could say that abortion rights in France are going down by nature of the logistics in the sense that there's That's less right. and less access to abortion, fewer doctors willing to do it. There, are, there is this famous uh, clause of conscience. Consciousness clause. Basically, some doctors can refuse to perform abortions and more and if more they doing so it. want. Apparently, more and more are doing it. You also have closures of hospitals, especially in rural areas, which mean that sometimes people have to travel, you know, 100 kilometers, lack of public transport, etc. So it's, it's not that abortion itself is under threat necessarily but the availability of abortion yeah. is seriously yeah in question yeah which is interesting this movie introduces you to this idea of well diy abortion kit you know which yeah. is again that's a quite militant and radical approach but you know maybe we should remember how to do abortions in case one day you have to do it and you don't have to resort to coat hangers and knitting needles god forbid that we would <laughs> go back to anything like that mm -hmm. but certainly women in poland at the moment are having to go to other countries it mm -hmm. looks like italy's going the same way of course you're american and mm -hmm. you know the situation in some states in the u.s mm -hmm. where uh, it's no longer available so these are concrete examples of how the abortion rights are being rolled back 
we'll see what happens with this attempt to get abortion rights enshrined in the French constitution and whether indeed really that is the way to go or not. Sarah, you don't get much more American than the film producer Walt Disney, father of Mickey Mouse. Mm. Uh, but turns out he had a French connection. Ah. Yeah. He was born on the 5th of December 1901, so 121 years ago this week, in the US. But his distant ancestors hailed from Normandy, from a small seaside town called Isigny sur Mer. Oh, Isigny, like Beurre d'Isigny. There's this famous mm. butter and cream there. Yeah. It turns out the name Disney was a kind of anglicized form of Disney, meaning from Isigny. So when did this happen? Uh, oh, uh, a while back. Uh, 1066, to be precise. <laughs> <laughs> right, like a really long time ago. That's the Battle of Hastings, right? It is, yeah. So Norman French army of William, Duke of Normandy, fighting the Anglo-Saxon army of King Harold, William I, crowned King of England, and he chose England as his main residency. And as a way of thanking his loyal soldiers for helping him to conquer England, well, he gave them some titles including the French father and son duo Robert and Hugues Suard. Uh, they got the title Seigneur d'Isigny, Lords of Isigny, and so they became Robert and Hugues d'Isigny. So these were Walt Disney's ancestors. Yeah, they first settled in England where, according to French historians, Isigny got anglicised and became Disney. They gave their name to the village of Norton Disney in mm. the UK. Then later in the 17th century, a branch of the family moved to Ireland. And then in 1834, Walt Disney's great-grandfather left Ireland for Canada. And finally, in 1878, the family settled in the US, where Walt was born in 1901. Huh. So did Walt Disney make much of his French ancestry? Well, he apparently carried out genealogical research in the 1950s, so he was well aware of his Normandy roots. And he knew France quite well. His first trip to France was in 1918, at the end of the uh, First World War. He was 17. He became an ambulance driver. He joined the Red Cross in Normandy. Um, but it was towards the end of the war, so he shortly returned home. Um, but he kept links to France. Some of his work was inspired by French fairy tales, uh, notably Charles Perrault's Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. We've talked about Charles Perrault in the uh, in the podcast yeah, before. Yeah, we have. Um, and also the French version of Mickey Mouse magazine, Le Journal de Mickey, was published here in France in 1934, so quite early. And it's still apparently one of the most popular kids' magazines in France. Mm. Walt Disney received France's Legion of Honor in 1936. On a US TV show, What's My Line, in 1956, blindfolded panelists had to guess who he was, and he made it a bit harder by replying in French. Are you a performer in the literal sense of the word? Oui, oui, oui. What is that, he said. <laughs> yeah. Not much French there. I mean, it sounds like people are even struggling with the word we. Oui. Yeah, cl yeah, clearly. <laughs> so um, has the town of Isigny-sur-Mer made much of its link to Walt Disney? Well, for years it didn't. But then in 2016, it marked the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney's death uh, by inaugurating the Walt Disney Garden. It was a way of highlighting uh, Walt Disney's ancestors, but also his passion for nature. The Disney coat of arms, which appears on the first theme park near Los Angeles, includes the two lions of the Normandy crest. Huh. Yeah, and Sleeping Beauty's castle in Disneyland Paris was allegedly inspired by the silhouette of Mont Saint-Michel, which is, as you know, in Normandy. Quelque importance, j'ai ma petite concession. 
de l'Angleterre au mausolée avec toujours quelqu'un dedans. J'ai des petites bosses, plein les allées, et je suis triste cependant, car je n'en ai pas, et ça m'agace et ça défrise mon blason. Au cimetière du Montparnasse, à quatre pas de ma maison, à quatre pas de ma maison. Sarah, cemeteries are, of course, places for the dead, but paradoxically, the dead and the living coexist, perhaps nowhere more so than Père Lachaise Cemetery here in Paris. Yeah, yeah, it serves as a neighborhood park, and it's a huge tourist draw, one of France's most famous cemeteries. Lots of famous people are buried there. Chopin, Jim Morrison, Oscar Wilde, Gertrude Stein. Yeah, so that draws in big crowds, right? More than three million visitors every year mingle with people who are attending funerals of ordinary, lesser-known residents. Some of those lesser knowns are actually my own family. I have a, wow. my family has a tomb there, actually. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, with my great-grandfather, my grandmother in there. So. Do you go there often then? <laughs> Once in a while. Okay. Yeah. Well, a little known fact, perhaps, is that six of the residents of this enormous graveyard are alive. <laughs> Creepy, <laughs> but I'm guessing you're talking about the caretakers. I am. Mm. Benoit Gallo, he moved there with his wife and four kids in 2018 to take up the post of curator. He lives in the middle of the cemetery in an apartment above his office on Rue de Roupeau, uh, the street of rest, if you like. He's 42 years old and he recently published a book, La Vie Secrète d'un Cimetière, The Secret Life of a Cemetery. It's partly an attempt to demystify his job get away from the image of this sort of sinister undertaker and show the cemetery's really rich biodiversity. Our colleague, Laura Angela Bagnetto, who's writing her own book on Père Lachaise, went to meet him. He told her he was more or less set up for the job. I grew up in this environment. My parents ran a memorial stonemaker's business. We had a tombstone showroom in the garden. So I wanted to show that you can grow up around undertakers and have a totally normal life. You don't have to be either traumatized or fascinated by death. Now I live with my children in a cemetery and they also have tombs in their garden, like I did. He was keen to try and change the bleak image that many French people have of cemeteries and funerals in general. People imagine we're depressed. A bit like the undertaker in the French comic Lucky Luke, who never smiles. He's very old and sad. He virtually carries death around with him. Sometimes people say to me, oh, we expected someone older. You have a sense of humour. I say, sure, we can talk about cemeteries with a touch of humour and break down some of those assumptions, especially in France, where death is still rather taboo. Gallo and his 80-person team breathe life into the cemetery, but it also has its own dynamic. There are 4,000 trees, 1,000 bushes, and since Paris introduced a zero-pesticide policy in its parks and cemeteries in 2011, the flora and fauna has really flourished. There are grassed over areas, but these are mown just once a year. Weeds are left to take over the paths. There is, of course, maintenance, but no attempt to control nature. Gallo was beginning to get into the spirit of this. But then in March 2020, France went into lockdown. It was a difficult period for us. We weren't in lockdown. We were working, sadly, because people were dying. But lockdown proved a boon for wildlife. With little human presence in the cemetery, weasels, insects and birds had a field day in the vegetation, which had been left to run its course. And then, as Gallo was finishing his shift one day at the end of April, 
The cemetery was deserted. He saw something incredible which would light the spark for his book. I came face to face with a baby fox and it made a big impact on me. We were living through this dramatic period. There were a few of us working, but we had 40% more work. We were burying people every day. And seeing this baby fox, seeing that foxes had settled and reproduced in Paris was a wonderful piece of news. It spurred Gallo to take his camera out of the cupboard and he began taking photos of the foxes and posting them on Instagram. He admits to being nervous, though. Unlike London or Brussels, you don't see foxes in Paris. And in the French countryside, they're hunted, so they're seen as pests. I thought families might take it badly, seeing foxes running between tombs. I thought there might be complaints, but not at all. People sent messages saying how soothing it was to see so many animals where their families are laid to rest. To know they're surrounded by those animals, that there's life. They like the fact that a fox could come and take a snooze on their parents' grave. Gallo went on to photograph other animals and insects that have made their home in the horse chestnuts or among the 75,000 tombs and mausoleums in Père Lachaise. The cemetery is one of the few open spaces in Paris that's closed from 6pm to 9am and has no artificial light. The graveyard is unique in other ways too. Although some families who've lost loved ones in tragic situations are of course distraught, Gallo says the vast majority he meets are not sad. When he took on the job, he placed a black tissue box on his desk in preparation for weeping families, but it's rarely been used. More than 80% of people I receive are genuinely happy. Just yesterday, two sons told me how happy they were. I never imagined I'd hear those words, but they said being in Perlichez brought them a lot of comfort. Parisians tend to think there is no more room at Perlichez, and then from time to time a famous person is buried there. So when they ring up and I say, yes, there's a space, they're very surprised. So Sarah Gallo admits this doesn't happen that often. Uh, the majority of plots in Père Lachaise have been sold in perpetuity and only around 100 concessions come up each year from families who haven't renewed them. And you can't reserve a place. Mm, so getting one is just luck of the draw. No wonder people feel a bit special. We've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Vincent Pourra. Questions or comments? Why not get in touch? You can send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and you can get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, December the 15th. Bye for now. Bye, Bye. Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.